Bienvenido a Entusiasta, un podcast de Ilan Katzmayo. Entusiastas patrocinado por Skull Candy. Grandes earbuds, grandes audífonos, gran producto, se los recomiendo ampliamente. Hola, hola, hola. Yo soy Ilan Katzmayo, abogado de profesión y entusiasta por vocación. Y hoy tenemos nuestro primer y hasta ahora único eh, episodio en inglés con la magnífica Jill Magid, brillante artista, mujer muy interesante. Entonces, para nuestros escuchas bilingües va a estar muy interesante este episodio de Jill Magid en Entusiasta. Ojalá lo disfruten. Okay, so let, so let's let's talk about you. Um, okay. So so we're we're roughly the same age. You were born in forty three. I was born in forty four. We have two kids. Forty three. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wait. So, so you were born in seventy three. I was born in seventy four. I mean. Oh, I thought you said forty three and forty four. Yeah, you're not that old. You you were born in seventy three. I was born in seventy four. So, yes. And um, you have two boys. I have two boys. Oh. How old are your boys? Eight and 13. Oh my God. I have a 10 and a six. Oh, wow. But very similar age gap. Yes. Yeah. There's, um, they're five years apart, but um, for a month, a year, they're four years apart. So, exactly. <laughs> so it's almost the same. Absolutely. And my kids, I don't know about yours, but my kids are insane. They're crazy maniacs. They're like Attila the Hun in Genghis Khan. <laughs> my little one is crazy, and my older one is, he's the older one. You know, he plays the role of, of a little bit more careful, a little more deferential to authority. The little one has no boundaries. How do you think your relationship with your kids has influenced your work? Because that's a very specific question. How is my relationship with my kids? Um, I mean, I think it's just deepened things. Um, it is really amazing to watch children perceive things um and you can't always see it you know but there it is amazing sometimes when i can see the ball dropping in like right, they're getting you know it. where they're getting it. and um one of my favorite my kids know this story because i've repeated it to them a lot of times but my first son Um, when he was a baby, I had him sitting up on the counter in one of these chairs, and there was a photograph of him and his father on the windowsill. And whenever I was talking to him, I would, you know, point to his father and say something. Oh, daddy, this, daddy, that. And I remember the day where he looked at the photograph and suddenly understood that it was a two-dimensional image of a three-dimensional living human. I saw it switch 
And it was one of the most profound. I mean, it was like the Lacanian mirror stage right, in a way, right. like it's playing uh-huh. out. Yeah, it was that aha. Uh-huh, and it was so amazing. So I guess I would just say my relationship with them is there's a kind of generosity of wanting um, them to understand what I'm thinking about or working on um, of, of needing to put it in a language or a, not even a language that they'll understand, but a form that they might understand. I would say that that like just being conscious of um, how something is being communicated and perceived. So you're, you're motivated by their understanding of what's going on that, that drives you. I wouldn't say it drives me. I think in a way um, I do separate my work um, from them in a lot of ways too. Just, I think it's like a compartmentalizing thing that the work that I do, at least for me, it takes such concentration and focus um, that I even do tricks on myself to kind of switch modes between parenting and then going to the studio. Like just before re- uh, meeting up with you, I got my second coffee. <laughs> but it was just to like break it, you know, go out, get the coffee, bring it back and switch mindsets. So I wouldn't say that drives me. I would say more that I do find it um interesting and relevant that they understand what I'm working on. So talking to them about what I'm thinking and what I'm making um, does make me think through the work in different ways. But I think what drives me is, is has always been my own curiosity about how does the world work and what is my place in it? You know, how am I an individual citizen in these larger, um, in this larger spectrum of power yeah, yeah, in authoritative I, organizations. I, I, I see that in your work. I, I, I totally see that you are an observer of dynamics. That's, I mean, if I had to define you as an artist, you're somebody who is questioning and analyzing the, the point where the individual stands in the larger scheme of things. But I would add that I'm not an observer as much as I choose to then participate. That it's not a witnessing of those dynamics; it's an engagement. You but engage. absolutely, yeah. It's uh, it, it's very political in in a sense. In that way, yeah, I would say well, a hundred percent. I think it's political in that it's engaging systems that I'm not really invited into. I mean, you're sort of in it no matter what, because you live in the world and these systems are a part of your social fabric. So you're always engaging in every system I've worked with. You're in some way engaging. But you can care or not. You can care or not, or you can think that you have no role to play or it doesn't really affect you. Um, or all these things, but I don't think that. I mean, I'm also not naive enough to think as an artist, I'm going to turn a system upside down and change all the laws around it. I'm like raising the questions of how they're organized, why we accept them as um, locked into place and, and movable. 
Um, and I think that, that that sheds light on fragility in systems and also human vulnerability, but also uh, individual potential um, to participate. Okay. You, your, your, your course, your life has been professionally, you, you're an art student, you have a master's in art, you have always worked as an artist, even though you're a, you're a creative in general because you, you do film and you write, so you're not like this, you know, just, just a conceptual artist. But you, the, these, um, how would you say, these passions or, or this work, it has to come from something before. I mean, you, did you grow up in a house that was very political, like a very, you know, liberal, vocal, you know, Eastern, you know, East Coast family? Well, firstly, I, um, yes and no. <laughs> um, I didn't get a, a master's of art. I got a master's of science in oh, visual really? studies. Yeah, but to be fair, it was a program at MIT. It was really amazing. Um, it was all run by artists. So it was um, Joan Jonas was a professor of mine, Christoph Roditsko, Dennis Adams. Muntadis is there, but he came after me. Um, and it was like MIT. You have way more professors than students. So there were like seven professors, and there were only three of us in my year. Um, but it, and it was maybe too rigorous where it was in the architecture school, but it was the arts program, but you had to take many classes outside at MIT or Harvard that wasn't studio art classes. And in undergrad, I went to Cornell and I did get a um, BFA in sculpture. I was mostly doing bronze casting and steel welding. <laughs> Nice. Um, it like real full on, you know, fire and metal kind of things. Um, but I chose specifically and my parents kind of pushed me, but I agreed with them for me not to go to a, to an art school per se, you know, it was an art school, but you had to take again, so many classes outside of art. And my inspirations for all my artwork was coming outside of art. And also Cornell was basically teaching up to Mondrian and then right. it stopped. So I didn't learn any contemporary art in undergrad. So I was pulling more from critical theory and anthropology. And um, Cornell has a, I mean, they have great other schools, you know, they, yes. it's, it, it's like a great, it's probably not the, you know, the most vanguard, you know, avant-garde uh, art school, but no it is an interesting <laughs> place to go to school because you, you have a bunch of, you know, it's an Ivy League school, you have a bunch of people who are probably very similar, you know, it's, it's probably an interesting place. It was great. I mean, in terms of like the critical theory, you had Hal Foster there when I was there and Susan Buck Morse. They taught a class together, which was like an incredible class. And they had this amazing sexual tension between them. So it was really? like, oh, my God. So you had this like critical theory kind of like debate wars always playing out in front of you. Um, it was really incredible. And then the anthropology department 
um, was another school there uh, that had a huge effect on me. And so a lot of the stuff I was reading um, is what I was making sculptures out of. So I was really interested in Karl Marx. And um, the sculpture professors used to make fun of me and call me the little Marxist because all of my um, sculptures were trying to figure out these kinds of Marxist systems out of steel and bronze. I mean, it like totally Sounds didn't a lot work like work in a way. <laughs> it probably didn't work materially, but those were the ideas. They all were like, who as an artist am I in society? Can I have a meaningful effect? Or not. Um, so some of the same ideas um, that I'm still kicking around. I had teachers, though, in Italy who basically told me that if you're an artist, you're, you're making the same piece over and over and over again with the same questions. It just looks different. I think that's totally true. I think that uh, if you look at Avedon, his work, you know, he basically took the same picture his entire life. Yeah. Same compositions and everything, yeah. So, you know, um, I think it's sad that maybe when you die, you haven't still answered that question. I don't know. But um, but, but I never think with art, right, I never think with art, you're, you know, you're just trying to get deeper into an understanding or ask better questions, you know. It's not like you finish and you. Yeah. There's this great line in in this HBO documentary, the one about the, the price of everything. Yes. Uh, uh, there's this great line where this art critic says something like, if, if you own the gimmick, you'll be great. If the gimmick owns you, you're lost. Mm-hmm. Right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody has... I, I don't want to be, you know, I don't, I don't want to break it down to like a super simplistic term, but everybody has a gimmick or their gimmick or their thing. They have their own, you know, whatever. And, you know, like even Picasso or Warhol or the greats, they have this thing that makes them them, right? That's mm-hmm. totally identifiable. And even with great artists who are probably not as popular in, in outside of the art world, like Richard Serra, or you know Richard Prince that you look at their work and you can you can recognize that they really own their craft but they're working on the same thing over and over and over and over I mean even if you look at like Prince's work you think that one day he did you know the the nurses which I don't like at all but then he does this other stuff it's still trying to be irreverent it's still trying <laughs> to be menacing in a way you know so you know, I, I respect that people stick to their guns and they have this central theme and it's not, you know, all over the place that they're doing this one thing and it, and they're just, you know, sharpening their knives, their entire career, trying to make it better and better and better. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, you know, it, it, I think that, that a lot, a lot of it has to do with your, genre in your age you know everybody reaches their peak it's like sting you know i always think you know things super cool you know back in the day now it's not so cool right (laughs) 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 right i mean okay tell me about mexico were you just in love with Mexico and came to Barragan or were you in love with Barragan and then sort of like became this Mexican, you know, what happened? Yeah. Well, 
What happened is I was invited to participate in a group show at the Tamayo. Right. And it was an excellent show. Um, I'm forgetting the title now, which is embarrassing, but it was about um, secret agencies. Um, and uh, so I was in Dutch. that. You did the Dutch yes. thing. Yes. Yeah, so I, ha- I did. I showed a few pieces from the Spy Project um, in that exhibition. And I also came back and did a performance based on the censored novel that I wrote. Um, it was censored. Uh, it was about my experience being commissioned by the um, AIBD, which is the Dutch Intelligence Agency and Secret Service of Holland. And then the Dutch um, censored 40% of the book. And I made a performance with a bunch of actors. Um, and we did that at the Tamayo. And so during that show, I came to Mexico City at two different occasions, one to install the show, and then I returned again um, to do the performance. And both times, I was just so in love with the city. I mean, I think cities are like romantic relationships. You either fall in love right away or you don't. And um, I, I fell in love right away. And so um, I thought, oh, it would be interesting to have a gallery here so that I could come here more often and show work here. I also love a lot of the artists in Mexico City um, and the artwork in general. So I wanted to be part of that dialogue. And so then I started working with Pamela at Labor. And in terms of Baragon, um, Pamela understood very well how I work, that I like to go visit a place and get to know an area or a system and then move into it and make a work with it. And so Labor, I actually went coming um, for that show with a different idea. It had nothing to do with that. And then I went on a tour of Baragon's house and I was very fortunate that I was the only person on the tour. So I got this like one person tour through his house and I was so moved not only by Baragon's architecture um, but also the narrative um, trajectory through the house that was his design of course but also this kind of path being led by this architect's um, voice and discourse and stories and pointing out things and after that experience I just couldn't get his architecture and and that narrative out of my head. And it took a little while before um, I saw within it the potential that there really was an artwork in there for me once I learned about the difficulty around um, the proprietary relationships over his archive and the rights to it. But before that, I was just really impressed and moved by his work. Um, But as the kind of artist that I am, I just didn't see, you know, a project in there for me until I learned more about the larger circumstances around his work. I think that when you go to that house, which is incredible, you, you, you know, just to the plain eye, you know, it's a photogenic 
house. You know it's gonna, you know, you know it's gonna stand out. It's gonna, it's it's just a beautiful, smart place. And and Iñaki Bonillas did this whole work on the storage spots in the house because it has like so many nooks and crannies because he didn't want any clutter. So everything's, you know, hidden way in the back. It's it's crazy the way he made everything. He designed everything to be functional, yet always beautiful. There's not, you know, not you, one cupboard. Everything's like in the back. It also, it just has such its own atmosphere in there. I think that's, um, I mean, of course, everyone talks about the light and the darks and the shadows. Um, so it's, it's nothing new um, to talk about that. But when I was moving through the space and those openings and contractions and the way the light was and the energy of each room, I um, I just wanted to sleep there and write in that house. That was right. like the first desire I had. And thank God I finally got permission to do that. And it was an absolutely incredible five days of sleeping in that house and writing in different spaces of it, being able to observe it um, through time, you know, because it's very different to go on a tour and walk through as magical as that is. It's something else to at two in the morning, wake up and be lying there alone <laughs> in right. that house or waking up at 5 a.m. with a coffee and sitting in. Absolutely. You, you live in Brooklyn, right? Yes. Yeah. I have this sense for a long time that Mexico City is like the new Brooklyn. You know, there's like so many people here and it's so creative. And, you know, you walk down the streets of Roma and Condesa and everybody's like from someplace else. And it's, you know, it's like suddenly everybody moves to Mexico City and everybody lives in the same five blocks. No. I mean, I think that's a compliment to Brooklyn. But yeah, Brooklyn yeah. is pretty cool. <laughs> it's pretty cool. I, um, I, I would say the area in Brooklyn I used to live, Greenpoint, um, I see that more. I think uh, the energy, the creative energy and the food over there, you know, has that kind of um, feeling. Uh, I just love the architecture so much in Mexico City, not just the Hermanos, like the whole urban landscape is so beautiful. Uh, you know, I, I always say this to my American friends. It, it's hard to define, but in Mexico City, everything is crisper. You know, it's, it's like a world with no drywall. You know, like in the States, everything is drywall. No matter where you go, everything's drywall. And it looks like drywall. Here, everywhere you go, it, everything has like this really well-made, like stand the test of time, quality like even like uh the, like the service like a guy who's going to serve you he's going to bring you know everything is just done in a better you know just you know more dedicated way yeah it, it makes a lot of sense the way everything is is delivered to you in mexico visually and physically the food mm. you know the laughs it's the only place in the world i know that people um you know have lunch at three and get up at ten <laughs> right so it's that crazy. is not Brooklyn. that's not new york no that's not new york and and new, also because one of the, the the main differences 
is that in Mexico, people don't have to run errands or don't run their own errands. It's like you don't do your laundry. You don't have to make the bed. You don't have, because we have a lot of, you know, domestic help in Mexico, socially. So you, so you get home and you're, you're not cooking for an hour. And you're not, I mean, not everyone has that. Though, no, right? in, in Mexico, <laughs> maids have maids. Oh, okay. Because let's say you have, you know, your maid that comes to your house, right? And then they have a home. So they have a maid at home. Like every, everybody has some sort of help around their lives that makes it, that, that makes it work. We, we are a society which is based on somebody helping you out at home, getting your stuff done. Wow. Right. And, and yeah. even so like you have a lot of working mothers, well, working mothers, they, of course they have people at home that help them out. Like everybody has this system where, you know, we, we have homeless people, but it's not like in the States where, you know, homelessness is this huge, huge issue where you see them on every street. You know, it's hard for somebody to fall through the cracks in Mexico. Like even in very, very poor societies, um, people will be, will be held together by their own communities because we have a, a real sense of community. Whereas in the United States, everywhere you go, somebody's from someplace else. But people there are, are com- yes, I mean, but there, there are communities, strong communities within the city too. I mean, you have, um, it's even something I was thinking about in, in the work that's at Labor now about bodegas, you know, thinking about how the local community uses. I mean, it's a different thing than what you're saying. Um, but I wouldn't yeah, but say a, there aren't, commu- you know, oh, yeah, senses I, of community. I, I totally get that. And also because in a city like New York, it's the sense of community, of community pride, of people working for their community. It, it's uh, it's really strong the way it's so political and people you know they they really fight for their three or four blocks of their borough and you can see them really struggling out but it's but it's a sense of how the community will take care of you how government is involved in you yes in mexico it's very different in mexico it's much more family oriented because i think that we've lost or um, faith in the government. I don't think we ever had faith in the government. Whereas in the United States, people demand help from the, you know, they demand their government to do their job. I think, I think we're in a really um, dark place right now, though, in the United States and have been um, for a while with the extreme polarization between the right and the left and uh, a strong mistrust of the government. It's, it's really fraught times right now. I just heard on the news, I think there were 10 mass shootings in the last week or something. I mean, oh, it's that's insane. The last it's month. just, yeah, it, no, I think it's even, it's even because a mass shooting in the United States is considered four or more deaths. Um, so it's, uh, it's not an easy time right now. So trust in the government, I, I would say, is at a low. Um, and we really feel that um, strongly, I would say, on a daily basis. 
Well, it's, at least yeah, I do. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. I, th- I think that the, one of the, the crazy things about the United States right now is that people on the left and on the right, everybody's outraged. I mean, everybody feels a, a sense of anger about what's going on. The culture wars are at their peak, right? And it's not just, you know, everything's a double standard and it's not just guns and abortion. It's everything. It's a notion that people are losing their country. You know, the, the left, both the left and the right, everybody thinks that the turn, that their country's turning into something that they don't recognize. And that's the real powder keg. The powder keg is this extreme discomfort with the country you live in. And also, I would say what's really challenging is we live in a democracy, and at least on paper, um, and, you know, you want to have the belief that everyone's opinion matters and everyone's opinion is valuable. But then once you had Trump in power, it was just, I mean, I found it even hard, you know, to talk to someone who I knew supported him in like being able to listen and hear what they were saying without getting like really angry angry (laughs) and defensive. And it's like how it's, it feels nearly impossible. You know, how do you have that dialogue when um, so many very serious positions um, it's hard to be like, Respect. It's hard to maintain respect when some of the positions um, another person is holding is so deeply against what you believe is ethically okay. <laughs> um, so, and and I'm sure it's felt on the other side too. So, um, it's it's uh, it's the big question is how do you get out of that? You know, how do you open? Well, that's discourse? a simple answer. That, that's a simple answer, but it's an impossible um, solution because I, I think that the main problem is that people, um, arguments make people go to a worse place because everybody thinks that winning the argument is about having a better point. Mm-hmm. And winning the argument is not necessarily about having a better point. I mean, winning the argument is not about being necessarily right. Winning the argument is about um, bridging gaps. And the and so everybody um, starts committing to their position instead of committing to a solution. That's the problem with America. The problem with America is that everybody's entrenched in their position, and it gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah, and I think even like even when I think of my work, you know, a, an approach separate from if I'm thinking politically about my life, you know, in, in these solutions. If I'm, if I'm entering a foreign system, you know, it's very easy to go in and just simply criticize something. But if you go in and you're like, I'm going to try to understand what's happening here. I'm going to try to understand what's the mission of this system. What is it trying to solve or accomplish? Who is it benefiting? Who is it not benefiting? What's the language being used here? What are the metaphors inside that system? Because that tells you so much about the whole perception of things, if you know how the metaphors or even humor is being used. And, like, that's that's always a very interesting um, element is, like, even if we take the spy project, for example, 
going in and trying to understand their position, what they're trying to do, what the mission is and what the goal is, um, you, you can also better understand all the decisions that are being made. You can still be critical of those, but it's a different kind of position because you first had to understand where they're coming from, what they're processing and consuming, what their opinions are. And I just think that creates a richer space for dialogue. So like, it's like how to get there where you can first try to understand where the other is. The, talking about the spy project, that, that's a you know, counterintuitive project because it doesn't seem like a secretive agency would be the place where art would be a factor. And, and the only reason that that was the case was because there was this law in the Netherlands that forced all government projects to have some, you know, some funds for the arts, right? Yes. So were they hostile? Were they nice? What, what was up with those guys? Well, it was, you know, it's a giant organization, but basically, I don't know if they have this in Mexico, but they do have it in the United States. It's in the U.S. It's called 1% for art. And it simply means that if there's um, any project being built with taxpayer money, so an intelligence agency is funded by taxpayer money, um, that uh, if they're building a project that uses taxpayer money, 1% of the total cost of that project has to go to commissioning artwork for that site. Um, so the AIBD... Um, in 2005 or six, when I first got the commission, um, they, uh, they had outgrown their headquarters. Um, that was after Teo Van Gogh was killed and um, London bombings happened. There was just like more terrorist activity. The AIBD doubled in size. They couldn't fit in their building and they had to make a new building. And therefore, they had to commission um, 1% of the building for art. And Monica Sasanowska and I both got those commissions. So um, I think, you know, the feeling I got once I got the commission was they just wanted to get an artwork. <laughs> you know, they just wanted something nice for their building um, and to move on. And the way it works in Holland is there's this intermediary um, curatorial team that's not in the AIBD nor directly only working with you. It's part of the state. And they match the artist to the institution and kind of mediate that relationship. And so um, once I got the commission, there was this art committee or a committee that was formed in the secret um, service uh, in intelligence building that was in charge of me, right? And um, so they were open to me making an artwork, but for a year, they kept denying my proposal to be hired as an agent and come to find the secret face of their organization and communicate that through artwork. So it took a year, but then I got it. I got full security clearance to meet with agents in the field and agents who worked at the um, spy agency to make that artwork. And that process took three years. What was that like? 
Um, like an existential crisis. <laughs> it was amazing, but, um, you know, I was trying to learn more and more deeply understand and create an empathetic, vulnerable situation with an agency that was taught to not be any of those qualities ever. Um, so, um, to try to sum it up with, with, in this pocket of time here, um, it was it was a learning curve, and that um, the idea, as I said, was to find the human face of the organization. That was my goal. And originally, I proposed to write a book. Um, and when that became challenging, I said, "Look, I'm going to use all of my notes and make sculptural pieces and prints." And then through the process of that, I learned how to write the book. So I also wrote the book. But um, the process was that um, I wanted to learn what it was like to be a spy in that agency. And I was allowed to meet with agents that volunteered um, to meet with me. I had to make an infomercial that played inside the building People had to sign up through a contact and they were given fake names um, to meet with me in secret places and I would meet them. But the rule was that they weren't allowed to talk about their roles in the agencies. They could only talk about their lives outside of it, um, which I realized pretty soon on in was an impossible way to learn what it was to be a spy when I couldn't learn anything about their jobs. Um, so simultaneously, I was reading this book by Jerzy Kaczynski, a Polish writer who right. He's the best. I love. And um, Jerzy Kaczynski was always uh, feared to be a Polish spy um, and that his cover was that he was a writer. A liberal and, writer. Um, yeah. And so um, he wrote this book to kind of further the myth that he was a spy called Cockpit. And um, I was reading this book almost like a Bible and trying to use his techniques. Um, and so when I was out with some of these spies, I would ask the question and they would avoid the answer. But then one of them, um, I asked about the structure of the agency. And one of them told me a little bit about it, that there were seven divisions, like one is counterterrorism, one is censoring, one is the legal department, and they all had these numbers and they were called directions. So the next time I went out with another spy, um, I said, what direction are you in? And he was like, well, I'm not supposed to tell you that. And I said, well, that's a shame because I just met with someone in direction four um, the censoring department is really fascinating. He was like, well, I'm in direction seven and started telling me. And basically, um, because every time I was amassing more understanding of the way the system worked and everyone's roles in it, the more fluent I was to discuss with them that system. So the more open the agents would be with me. And then many of them just really enjoyed the conversation, so they would keep meeting with me. And I think that a lot of them were probably using me to be able to discuss things within the system that they either enjoyed or had questions about or were frustrated about. Um, and so these dialogues got really fascinating. And from them, I made, I wrote my book and uh, made a series of 
artworks, but then the administration, um, the which had been a bit, the Dutch administration of it, like the head of the spy agency, then when he read the book, got really upset at um, how much everyone had told me, and so then that kind of how come? What, 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 why were they upset? But why were you know they, they were they were very um, secretive about this. so basically like the the structure of the system and the roles people played and how information was gained and um, I was writing I, I was allowed to write about those things I just couldn't record anything other than with pen and paper and um, it, a kind of interesting thing happened because in my work thus far. I had done a lot with surveillance systems and the police and um, I hadn't ever said I was an artist because in the, in the countries in which I had been working in the idea of an artist was like a trickster or someone who wasn't earnest or, and no one um, wanted to work with me when I said I was an artist. Oh, we're a police department. We don't work with artists, you know? And so I decided to never lie but to just call myself a researcher and start with what I was trying to understand about the system. And as a researcher, there were no preconceived ideas of who I was and what I was doing. And so the door was just more open. And the challenging thing with getting an art commission from a spy agency is that I was brought in as an artist. So everyone knew who I was, what I did. They knew my past work, like, you know, here they were, these, like, shady figures, and I was, like, very clearly who I was. And so... Um, so you were uh, trustworthy from the beginning. Yeah, I them. think... I don't even know if it was trustworthy or just, like... They just didn't really respect the position, you know, as an artist. Like, it, I get really annoyed in um, the New York Times, so it's always art and leisure, as if art is only just like the fun thing you do on a Sunday, you know, and it's not something. Well, that makes that, sense. I mean, that's the way they have to market it because it's not going to be like art and study or art and right. art work. It's always like art <laughs> and, you know, fun shit. Then they're not going to call yeah. it like art and suffering. Right. And I mean, I do, I find art completely enjoyable. And, um, but I think, you know, when it's just, pictured as leisure it just cuts out a right, lot it's of not the fluffy. Other things. It's, it's not like it's this not fluffy. fluffy thing where you know you grab it and you hug it and it's not that it should challenge you but you know yeah but it's exciting to be challenged right and it's like i mean it it's uh, yeah i think it's exciting to and challenging to takes to look at something you, that's become cliche or you've taken for granted or you don't think it affects you and then realize that, wait, I am implicated by this and there is another way to approach this system. There is another way to be visible and participate and question the norm. Um, yeah, a lot of people don't like that um, because it's destabilizing. Um, but I do believe art, and even, I'm not even saying that a painting can't do that. I mean, I've had experiences with, you know, on a formal level where I'm just blown away as well, and I see the world differently through that. So I'm not saying it just has to be conceptual art that does that, but it is something I'm looking for in my own work and in the work of others that turns me on. 
But isn't it funny? I, I always say this, that, you know, some people find art super offensive. I mean, they are super offended by art, right? Yes. And these same people who are super offended by art, I mean, they, they, they really, really hate some art. I'm not saying all art, but either they're offended because it offends them that they don't get it or because they think that a five-year-old could, could do it or they think that it's, um, you know, morally um, erosive or perverse. And these same people are super moved by other kinds of art. Like they're super moved by music or by, you know, by other forms of human expression. But they're totally, totally pissed off by art. Yet they love, you know, country music or they love, uh, you know, film or they love other things. But when it comes to art, which is challenging, I mean, music's not supposed to be challenging. Film is not supposed to be challenging or necessarily to be challenging. I'm, no, I'm talking to a filmmaker, so you, you must forgive me. But, but art is challenging, especially conceptual art now. A great art, if you think about great artists like Donald Judd or, you know, you get a guy who doesn't get it and he'll look at a Judd and he'll say, that's stupid. That's dumb. And then he'll be offended by how dumb he thinks it is, Right. Maybe you go on here. <laughs> this is right. your, this is yours. Your thing. Go on. Right. So I always find that it's 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 it tells you a lot about a culture by how much they can and can't tolerate the the arts, and that has to do with when I say culture, it, it means the culture of an institution, the culture of a community, and the culture of a nation or the cultures of a nation. So you go to a place like a spy, like a spy organization. Well, most of the people there are probably going to be hostile to the artist because he's an invader. I get that, you know, he, he's an invader and they're not necessarily anti-art, but they're anti, you know, scrutiny. They don't want to be scrutinized. They don't want to be looked at. They're spies. No, spies don't like to be looked at. I get that. But in the larger sense, I think it's it's very telling that uh, that insular uh, reactionary cultures are usually the ones who are most offended by art. Well, I actually I don't know. I think it's I think it's a lot more complicated than that. In some ways, some of those societies understand the power of art the most, and that's why they're so. Um, there's so many rules around them. Like to go back to the spy project, um, the uh, the the code within the law that I initially sought out um, and how I designed the project um, was about was a clause about personal data, and that it said in the the law book um, around the spy agency that no there could be no information kept in the agency on an agent's um, personal life. So that was their religious point of view, their sexual orientation, their health records, th these kinds of things. And that, that rule or law grew out of blacklisting in the communist era. You know, people could be fired for their religious points of view and stuff, right? 
Um, so, so there was this clause against the holding of personal data, and I pitched to them that I be the agent of personal data, and that I go and collect their personal data, and that's how I start to know the face of the agency. Um, but that fear of um, blacklisting and um, and and communism ran along a time in which artists or playwrights or musicians, you know, were uh, constantly shut down or jailed um, because their views were problematic and inspired protest or debate or questioning in the public realm. So you could also say like these kind of um, more totalitarian uh, societies understood the power of art and understood that it could rile a public and make people question. And so therefore the goal was to shut it down. Whereas some other communities and societies where art is seen as just some decoration, um, that, that art isn't given any power at all. And what happened with the spy agency in my case is that no one took me seriously. And so then when the head of the agency saw how much information I had gotten in the book that I had written, kind of flew off the handle and was like, we're confiscating your computer and your book. And they took a series of sculptures. They took a series of prints. They took all these things. Um, because suddenly I did register. But the other thing is, like, I do think what's interesting in terms of genres um, that you're saying, because um, certain political discourse only seems to, to some organizations, it, it's only visible or legible when it's written, okay? So, for instance, in the Spy Project, I made a piece, an installation called I Can Burn Your Face, and I had learned from the agents that I was getting dangerous in that inside that institution because I could, they said, you could burn us. And I was like, what does that mean? I could burn. And they said, you know, all of this stuff about us. And if we're agents in the field and you made that public, you burn us by exposing our identities. And then we no longer can be in the field. And they had a lot of this beautiful, very visual language, like burning, you know? And so I made um, a series of neon pieces where I told you I was only allowed to write about my encounters with the agents with a pen on paper. So I had these notebooks full of meetings and I would describe the agent. I would do a little doodle of them or something they said. And um, so for each agent that I met with, there were 18, I designed a neon floor piece with all these words describing them that I had learned would have been the words that would be censored, right? They were descriptive words like Moroccan, if they were Moroccan, and worked at a newspaper in Palestine from this time to this time. So it was all these kinds of descriptive elements that were sort of dangerous descriptors. And I wrote them, I took my own handwriting and made them in neon, um, this burning red neon, which is clear glass with neon gas running through it. And it looks like it's burning. So I took them literally and made these sculptures, these piles of words. And around the wall of that gallery, um, I had the same words that were in the pile, the same descriptors as a letterpress piece. So each spy had a neon pile in the same words as a letterpress piece. The agency 
only confiscated eight of those prints, but they left the neon piles on the ground. And what it taught me is that a sculpture, they didn't see it. It was hiding in plain sight. They didn't get it. They didn't see it as a, that it was the same words. And I found that like absolutely fascinating that unless it was letters on a page, it just didn't register, you know? So um, these different mediums in that case, language, a book versus a sculpture had a different um, political like existence. It just didn't, you know, it was incredible. That's insane. That's crazy. And so from that, from that point on, whenever I show those pieces in a public institution, a public museum, the neons that should have been confiscated along with the letterpress, they're off. I unplug them. They can't be on. To show, because I like making artwork that also remains in dialogue with, you know, the, the artwork can keep changing. That's like the show at Labor Now. There's a piece that changed because it's in the Mexican context. And it's legibility. Not that it wouldn't be legible to bring the American piece into the Mexican context, but there was an exciting opportunity to make a new work that could speak more about Mexican-American financial and trade that, relationships. That's a, that, that's a great title for this episode, Hiding in Plain Sight. Because that's, exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Okay, before we go, we have five minutes. Tell me about the Labor Show. Yes. So the Labor Show is called Tender, and it's a growing body of work that I've shown now um, as a public artwork in New York City with creative time at the Renaissance Society in Chicago and recently at the Modern in Dallas and now at Labor. And um, it is a piece that questions um, the relationship between the U.S. economy and human fragility It arose during um, COVID, basically. I was asked by Creative Time, which is a large public arts organization, to make a public artwork. And I was very frustrated and saddened by the discourse in the media and with politicians um, that, oh, the economy is doing fantastically, but 87,000 people died, you know, and then 100,000, and we all know it went. But don't worry, we've got millions. Right. So there was this, it it wasn't even like they were two different conversations. It was the um, forcing together as if this were a seesaw, right? The economy goes up, deaths go up or down or whatever. That relationship was was very fraught. Um, And I'd already with Baragon, which was kind of the biggest project leading up before thinking a lot about circulation and access. So in the case of Baragon, I was thinking about the circulation or the non-circulation of images and how the public, you know, is affected when images can't circulate, right, freely. And um, this was a time when I was thinking about money circulating and also the virus circulating and the relationships between the movement of money and the movement of bodies. And so the first iteration of Tender was a public artwork in New York, in which I got 120,000 newly minted 2020 U.S. pennies, the lowest denomination of currency in the U.S., 
And um, I engraved on the edge of the pennies, the body was already so fragile. That phrase, the body was already so fragile. Um, In between the two faces of the coin, it of course referenced the economic body of the U.S., the political body, um, and says, in God we trust, everyone's equal, all this stuff. And then on the edge, the third side was basically questioning, you know, our own fragility. And the reason I chose 120000 as the number is that equaled $1,200, which is one Trump stimulus check as part of the CARES Act that went out to individuals making under a certain amount of money a year, of course, didn't go out to any illegal immigrants um, or non-citizens, but apparently supposedly went $1,200 to um, to Americans. So I wanted to think about um, those relationships and also the physicality of money and touch, you know, that currency, cash, you need to touch it <laughs> and you need to pass it between people. Um, so those um, pennies were spent in bodegas um, throughout the five boroughs of New York, and that's how they entered into circulation and their legal tender, um, and they circulate uh, through the economy all over the United States, perhaps even outside of the United States. And then the, the project grew, and you see this at um, Labour, Um, Where I, after, you know, the fear, I made a film too called Tender Balance that also compares the movement of money and the movement of bodies and brinks armored car carriers that carries the cash around um, and distributes money and comparing them to the refrigerated trucks um, in New York especially, but they were everywhere that um, there were so many bodies that the morgues couldn't fit them, nor could the hospitals and these refrigerated trucks became moving, moving and storing bodies. Um, I don't know if you know about them, but they were everywhere in New York, these white trucks. So the film, there's no words. There's uh, The score is really intense, and um, it, it's a feeling. It's, it's a kind of meditation on the movement of money and the movement of bodies and the feeling that the movement of these coins um, in cash also circulated like the virus. Um, so, so that came out later after the public art project and really is, works better, of course, in an institution than it does in a public art space. And there's a number of other works within the Labor show that point to different kind of slownesses of circulating or non-circulating money and their relationships to the body. I think that's that's deep. That's beautiful. That's a that's a great show. I haven't checked it out, but I will definitely, absolutely check it out very, very, very soon. And um, it's been a pleasure to to talk to you. I have an idea for you, which I think you might love, actually, if you let me (laughs) make a last suggestion. But um, I'm I'm a buff of Roman law. I... I, I don't lecture generally on Roman law, but I, I always um, go to to the tests that I, I am part of the panel that tests students on Roman law. And I think that the idea of citizenship, which is this uh, uh, Roman idea about what it takes to be a citizen, you would find very interesting. 
about who please, is um, who's not. Yeah, please send me. I, 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 I get really into that. I think that someone recently said that about after they saw the Tender Balance film, they said it's really a, rum, a rumination on what it is to be, to choose to be a citizen, not just like, be, you know, happen to be a citizen, but engaging citizenship. So um, I like that idea. So uh, send me your favorite. Discussion. Yeah, I think I think you'll <laughs> love that because you know this idea about whether a woman can be or not, mm-hmm. about if you're a woman is if you're a property or not. I mean, how this has evolved, and you know, we've come so far, and yet we're still so far away. You know. Yeah, it, I love I love how property always comes in, and that's part of all the work. Like Baragon Tender is like, what is property? What is shared? What what is self-ownership who no owns i mean what who yeah owns what? who owns yeah. because it's about those relationships that really set up equality or not i mean that's the whole thing with baragon too you know it's like what what does it mean to not have access and not like when things become property that maybe shouldn't or should be treated differently like different kinds of property yes but i'll but i'll tell you this as a I, you know, I, I describe myself, but if you ask me po- politically what I am, I always think of myself more to the left. But in reality, that, that's my idea of myself. But in reality, I'm a radical centrist. Mm. And I always think as a, as a centrist that the notion of property, of, of value, if nothing had value, we would take care of nothing. Yeah, I, I'm not anti-value and anti-owning things. I'm just anti-not thinking about what it means to own it and what it means for others to not be able to access that. I think that um, I also could never be a lawyer because I think it's very, very hard to apply one law to a That's given not, situation. Yeah. I mean, That's that is so... Part. It's so nuanced. I mean, it, there's in the nuance is what's so beautiful. I mean, I just think the discourse around law and how it brings in ethics, morality, philosophy, your political positions. I mean, it's uh, it's so generative. You know, you find your humanity in there. <laughs> Absolutely. But you know what's really hard about being a lawyer? I mean, the really hard part after you know your shit and you can really, you know, work your way around it and you're real once once you're there, the hard part, the really taxing part is being pissed all the fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you weren't, um, you'd probably be too soft. I mean, no. I'm, but I'm yeah. always, I'm every day. I'm at different levels of outrage. I'm I think you need, you need to just keep yoga. In, <laughs> I as did yoga today. Like, oh, good. There you go. See, for me, it's running. I just uh, like jump out of my studio seat, put on the shoes, and run until I exhaust myself, and then that's how I feel better. Great. <laughs> 
All right. Well, thank well, you so much for your um, time and interest, and you better go see the show. because I will. I'll, and I'll be in New York soon. I'll probably be in New York oh. next week. So um, it would be lovely to finally meet and have some coffee. I'm going with my lovely wife, who will be very psyched to meet you probably, surely. Oh, so great. So we have a plan. Great. So uh, it's great to meet you. Uh, you're every bit as interesting and enticing and brilliant as Pamela said you would be. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Take care. See you next week in New York. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Entusiastas patrocinado por Skull Candy. Grandes earbuds, grandes audífonos, gran producto. Se los recomiendo ampliamente. Entusiasta. Un podcast de Ilan Katzmayo.